everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover Christine, chapters 43 through 47. Let's start the show! As we start part three of Christine, Teenage Death Songs, we shift back to Dennis's first-person perspective. Dennis is falling hard for Lee, and she for him. But first, they discuss what has happened with Arnie and Christine, and do some detective work. Dennis calls George LeBay and learns more about Roland's past. Dennis and Artie get together for New Year's, and Dennis's fears about Arnie and Christine are confirmed. Dennis is terrified during a strange ride in Christine. When Detective Junkins is killed, and Arnie catches Dennis and Lee kissing, Dennis realizes he has to destroy Christine somehow. Dun, dun, dun. Jay, the big change here is that we're back to Dennis as the first-person narrator, so after that Part two, that was all third person. Dennis is out of the hospital and back on his feet with some help of the crutches. But he's also the one telling the story again. And we are firmly in his point of view. That's right. Everything we get sort of we have to get from from other characters. So Lee gives him some information about stuff and he finds out about Junkin's death in the newspaper and sort of pieces together what might have happened there. But uh, we're all first person narrator. So Good to be back in Dennis's head, I think. Yeah. Assuming we can trust him. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that later. You know, in this narrative switch, it's one thing to like, okay, we're switching back and forth, right? Because books do that all the time. You switch narrators or you switch perspectives or you switch styles perhaps sometimes. Sure. But there's this weird point where Dennis says, it's a story you have already heard, so I won't repeat it here. Suffice it to say that I tried to tell it pretty much as she told it to me. This is Dennis telling Lee everything that happened, right? Mm-hmm. And he addresses us. So he breaks the fourth wall as much as you can do that in a book and is addressing us, the reader, and is like, I, I, I know you've already heard it because you read part two of this book. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to tell it again like I told her. But that sort of like totally shook me out of things, right? Like, same for me. It's one thing to address the reader, but it's another one to say, hey, I know you already read the stuff that I don't even know about because I'm not the one who wrote it and I don't even know how it's in this book. It's sort of weird. Like it just sort of really was like, whoa, what happened here? And what what did happen here? What the hell? Well, I think you were right to be pulled out of the story because for all the reasons that we discussed previously about how when King switched from Dennis being the first person narrator to the third person narration in part two of the book. Switching back would have been fine enough, but this is Dennis talking about that third person narration as though he is fully aware of it in in all of its context and content. So it makes me wonder, like, are we supposed to understand that Dennis wrote part one? I'm picturing Dennis four years after the events of the story, just sitting down at a table with a pad and and a bunch of pencils, and writing the story as he knows it. Yep. So first person narration makes perfect sense for that. 
And then it switches to third person and we're like, well, okay, where did Dennis go? Who's writing the story now? Where, where's all this information coming from? Yep. And now it seems like Dennis just figured all of these things out after the fact by talking to people, looking things up in the newspapers, whatever. And for reasons that are not clear, decided to write that part of his own story, his own perspective and the information he'd gathered in another voice. Yep. And now he has decided to switch back to his own voice and then acknowledges that I already told you all this, so I'm not going to write it again Uh huh. in part three. Yeah, it is confusing as hell and it feels really sloppy. Yes. And if it's not sloppy, it brings up a lot more questions, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, who wrote that? Why did they write it? How are they working with Dennis to supposedly publish this, like you said, four years after the fact? Like, is he publishing it? Sometimes you get stories like Survivor type, and we're to understand that he is writing something in a diary, mm-hmm. and that perhaps this diary is found. And how we as the reader come to, to that story is, oh, this must have been found somewhere and somebody published it and that's what we're reading and that's the fiction around the actual book that we're reading right other times first person stories will come out and you're like oh they're just relating the events of their life and maybe they wrote it down and other times you don't even pretend any of that stuff right it's a first person perspective of maybe a detective story and you don't even think about it you just are like oh this is just the way that this story is being told to us but to physically to say like i'm writing this down for the first time in 4 years because I'm still trying to process what's happening. Then you have this middle part that's not that. And then you have him come back and say, you already read that stuff. You know what the story is. Mm-hmm. It's really breaking that wall in such a way that the reader's confused as to what it is. And like you said, I think it might be sloppy. Or the bigger question is, if we're to assume that Dennis is the writer of this book, did he write that second part up? And if so, how did he know that? Or is he just fictionalizing things like you said? Or maybe, maybe he's just making stuff up. So we hinted at it a couple episodes ago that maybe Dennis isn't a reliable narrator. Hmm. So Jay, I want to offer the opinion that maybe there is more to Dennis than what we seem and that he's making this up for reasons that he's not entirely being truthful to us about. And when I started thinking about that, I started to wonder, do we really know that much about Dennis? I kind of feel like the answer to that question is no. In many ways, Dennis is a cipher to us as a character. He is this first-person narrator, but he has access to so much information, and during part two of the book, seems to have an omniscient level of awareness. It's almost like he is, he's like a camera lens and a microphone meandering through this story and relating the, the information to us, and that's all. We don't get a lot of his motivations and he doesn't seem to change much over the course of the story so far and we're three quarters of the way through the book at this point yep so there doesn't seem to be an arc unless you count getting really busted up in a football game and then healing from those wounds as as a character change but it's not i don't see much of dennis himself come through even though he is ostensibly the main character we just don't know very much about him it's all surface Yeah, we know he's a good friend to Arnie, but what that friendship means is really in terms of Arnie, right? Like, Arnie's sort of weird and a little bit of an outcast, yet Dennis is friends with him. So maybe 
maybe he's kind, but it's very rare that you get a first person narrator who says, I'm not a kind person. I'm a terrible person, right? So like mm-hmm. that's very surface level. We know he's a jock and that's very clear, but we don't know a lot about his relationships with other people. He mentions other friendships. We know he's falling in love with Lee, but again, it's just sort of because she's there maybe. Previously, we talked about he had a girlfriend and he just called her the cheerleader, the cheerleader, the cheerleader, and now he's attracted to Lee. But yeah. it, it seems to be very much a physical thing. Like You don't get a lot of sense of like what does he like about Lee other than- Her cheekbones. Her high cheekbones. Yes. He laughs with Arnie and he has a good relationship with his parents. So we get all this, but- Really, in all of those things, we're learning more about those other characters than we are about Dennis. Right. We see that Lee seems to be falling in love with Dennis because she's gone through a bad relationship with Arnie. And in comparison to Arnie, Dennis is calm and and not chaotic in some way. Mild-mannered, I guess, maybe is a way to do it. We learn about Arnie, and all these people will talk to him. And he becomes, like you said earlier, a sounding board where they're just like, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. So we know he's a good listener, but that's really in purpose of the story, right? Because we need yeah. someone to, to to be the person taking in all this exposition. And so that's what Dennis is. But we don't know a lot about Dennis himself. And if you think about it that way, and you think about the fact that he's got something important here motivation-wise, he's fallen in love with Lee, and his best friend is the one who's in the way in some ways, or- mm-hmm potential barrier to him having a full relationship, maybe he's got another motivation here that we're not sharing about. And that might be me reading way too far into the book. But whereas in the first part, I considered Dennis a reliable narrator. Once I got to this part, I'm sort of questioning him and and thinking he's very unreliable. Yeah, I I think if if you were Junkins investigating what was going on here, you would say, who would come out ahead if Arnie were eliminated? If Arnie were blamed for murders and things like that. Oh, I, I think Dennis would have to be among among the people on that list, right? Yep. If Dennis is is arranging things in such a way to make Arnie seem like a madman to the point where he basically scares Lee away and she comes running into Dennis's arms. Right. It's like, oh, this plan's working out perfectly. Now all I need to do is erase Arnie from the picture permanently. Yep. And Dennis being laid up in the hospital, he's got a great alibi. Who knows how he's maybe manipulating all these things. Maybe he's been driving Christine around and mowing <laughs> people down and not telling anybody. And then he goes back into the hospital for physical therapy. Right. Or maybe those things didn't happen when Dennis was in the hospital at all. Because mm. the whole time that we're reading this story, we hear about it. It's from this weird third person, omniscient person who when we get to part three, we learn possibly was written by Dennis, or at least Dennis is aware that somebody else wrote that or somebody wrote that or that we're aware of it. So yeah, I think that line, which may have been King being sloppy, can potentially introduce all sorts of spanners in the works, as our British friends would say. The old spanner in the gears. Another thing I thought we should talk about is just making more connections. Mm. We're at a point in the story where the plot is starting to click together. Story threads are starting to end. Story threads are starting to connect with other story threads so that they can end maybe a little bit further down the line. The characters themselves are the the actors here doing this, making connections. Dennis is doing this investigative work. And if he's the one who wrote part two, 
like we just talked about, he had to find all these things out. Mm. So he's putting pieces together. He's starting to freak out because the more he learns, the more paranoid he's becoming, the more frightened of Christine and Arnie he's becoming. And he says, but I could make connections. I didn't want to, but I couldn't help it. And hadn't my father been looking at me strangely several times during the morning? Yes. Once or twice it had seemed he would say something. I had no idea what I might say if he did. Will Darnell's death, bizarre as it had been, was nowhere nearly as bizarre as my suspicions. Mm -hmm. Dennis is fully on board with the idea that Christine is haunted by some sort of demon or ghost of Roland LeBay, and he is now at the point where, because of his indiscretion with Lee, he is in Christine's crosshairs. Some might say headlights. Oh, <laughs> you might say that. Some might say deadlights. Ooh. He obviously has reason to be concerned if we feel that Dennis is a straightforward narrator mm -hmm. and, and he is starting to figure these things out. He can assume that Darnell figured things out and look what happened to Darnell and that Junkins figured things out and look what happened to Junkins. It's not a safe place to be able to make these connections. Right. I like when you brought up this idea of connections because it, it makes this almost seem like a mystery novel in some ways. Mm -hmm. the, I think they actually say, like, we have to do some detective work. And we see he goes to the library and he has to track down George LeBay. And he's got all these, like, different ways of doing it. And again, this is pre-internet. So he's got to, like, look at the microfiche to get the newspaper readings in the, in the library. And he has a research assistant at the library helping him. And you know, he's got to work different connections to get to LeBay. And then even Lee, right? They, he says, Lee had certain information I hadn't had before. And the reverse was also true. So there's this sharing of information. So as you were saying that like Lee had certain information and Dennis had certain information and the reverse was also true. I love these moments of catharsis in a story. It's when we as the audience know both sides of it already. And those characters can finally have a, an, an organic reason to share that information. Mm. And because of that, the, the combination of, of those two pieces of information allow them to solve the mystery or move forward in the plot somehow. This was like a really satisfying moment for me because I like that these two characters were working together to solve their problem. Yep. Oh, and one other thing, speaking of connections, I wanted to point out here was over the course of Dennis's investigations, he learned that the date that LeBay purchased Christine was November 1st, which was also the day that Arnie purchased Christine. Mm. Repetition of November 1st was like, that's, that can't be a coincidence. Right. There's too much other weird stuff happening. Here's just one more weird echo and overlap and... This is really, really freaking me out. Yeah. And th there's these two two clicking connections, right? So the one is Dennis sort of putting all the pieces in place as to what's happening, how Roland's involved, how what's going on with Christine, Arnie's role and everything. And then he and Lee are stuck on trying to figure out, well, how can we get rid of this car? Like, that's the only way we can solve the problem. And it's not till the last line of this section where. He's like, ah, I had an idea. And so then there's that other connection that clicks. Like, okay, it's one thing to investigate everything. 
and figure things out, mm-hmm. then there's this other piece. Well, what are we going to do about it? And we ended the section exactly there, right? Like I had an idea. And so now I can assume that the last section that we read for our next episode will be all about will Dennis Dennis's plan succeed or not? And what is the plan? I think there's been potentially some foreshadowing. If you've been a close reader on what could possibly be some of the ways that he's got, but how it's all going to go into place because Christine seems pretty sneaky, right? Dennis feels that the reason that he gets caught, he and Lee get caught kissing is because Christine has brought Arnie to the place where they are. Mm-hmm. The back parking lot of KFC, which I know when I was in high school, if I, if I ever wanted to impress a girl, that's what I would do. Not me. I, I took my, all my girlfriends to McDonald's. Classy. How would you do it? If you were in Dennis's position, how would you try to destroy Christine? Like if this were happening today and a friend of yours had a car and you're like, I'm going to destroy my friend's car. What would you do? I have no idea. I'm like so bad at that stuff. I I think I would do like Homer Simpson did when he was trying to commit insurance fraud, which is like drive the car to the top of a mountain and then (laughs) put it into gear and then jump out, right? And just hope it falls off the cliff. That's a pretty good one. I guess you need two different answers depending on whether or not your friend's car is possessed by a demon, can drive itself and repair itself. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? Like I, I... Dennis d- would not feel comfortable getting into Christine and driving her anywhere. Mm-hmm. So then how do you force a car to go somewhere when you can't drive it? Right. And if you tried to like put it on a tow truck, it would just drive away. Yeah. So he's got a small duster. It's not like he can like ram this giant Plymouth Fury off the road. Mm-hmm. He's going to wreck his car. So I would have said I would probably move to the second or third floor somewhere and never go on the street. <laughs> As we saw with our, our good friend Darnell, even that's not safe. Nope. Do you have any ideas? I don't know. I'd probably try to find some sort of like corrosive, you know, liquid, like mm. like an acid and arrange one of those, uh, you know, like a tanker truck, you know, like the kind that go around watering the plants in, in the city. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, like get one of those and it's just like, but it's filled with car melting acid and you just pull up next to Christine and, and then start spraying it and then just crinkle, crinkle, drip, drip. No more, no more car. Unless she can repair herself from that. Maybe it doesn't matter whether it's a dent or a tear or there are times when Christine's broken headlights have been missing and they just like whoop, reappear. Yeah. They're just there. It's not like, oh, the pieces of glass found their way back. They're just, so maybe there is no way. Maybe Dennis is doomed to fail. He at least survives four more years. Maybe he's writing this from the trunk of Christine. <laughs> Let me out. There's a guy in here. I'm on my last notepad. And can somebody please sharpen my pencils? Should we see if there's any Dark Tower thinnies in this section, Jay? Yeah. Let's explore some thinnies. I had one that I was sort of proud of, Jay. We were just talking about how it's quite possible that Christine led Arnie to where Dennis and Lee are kissing. Mm-hmm. And Dennis thinks that. He says, quote, it was nothing but a coincidence, a grisly, hideous coincidence, except that even now, a part of my mind is coldly convinced that it was Christine, that even at that turn, Christine led him there. And I'd like to think that there is no such thing as coincidence in Stephen King's world. It's all Ka, isn't it? You're damn right. 
it was Ka that brought Christine and Arnie there on that fateful night. I like it. What about you? Any Dark Tower thinnies? Well, I have one that it very much reminded me of Seth slash tax manifestations in The Regulators. The line, the present day streets of Libertyville were still there, but they were like a thin overlay of film. It was as if the Libertyville of the late 1970s had been drawn on saran wrap and laid over a time that was somehow more real. Mm. And this was when Dennis was taking that harrowing ride home on New Year's Eve, or I guess New Year's Day, with Arnie in Christine. And he was seeing the town where he lived and traveling on the streets that he knew well, but the world around him was the world of this past. It was the world of Roland LeBay's day when he was a young man, Dennis's age, driving Christine when Christine was new. And that is almost exactly like what Tack did using Seth's powers in Regulators, where the town that just looks like a regular suburban town becomes this desert western scene where the trees become cacti and the split-level homes become adobe structures and things like that. Yep. Tumbleweeds are going down the road. So there's some magic happening here, just like there was magic happening in Regulators, and it's changing the world around everybody. But it's kind of like this thinny. It's an illusion. The cactus is there, but it's not there. This layer of saran wrap is there, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. It's not really clear, and it probably doesn't matter, but if a road was a one-way street back in the day, but it's a two-way street now, like would you have a you know, head-on collision or something if you went the wrong way down it? None of those details really matter. The point is, this is a, a layer of magic just like we saw in The Regulators. Yeah. This last one is both a thinny and also Dennis asking a lot of the questions that you and I were asking last episode and the episode before. And Dennis asks, what was it? Some sort of a freak? An ordinary car that had somehow become the dangerous, stinking dwelling place of a demon? A weird manifestation of LeBay's lingering personality? A hellish haunted house? that rolled on Goodyear rubber, I didn't know. All I knew was that I was scared, terrified. Yeah. You get a little bit of that reading it this time, a, a hellish haunted house that rolled on Goodyear rubber. And I, I was thinking of the house that Jake ends up going through, hmm. except this one isn't because there's the demon, right? The house turns into an actual demon that's trying to eat Jake as he's trying to yeah. go, go between worlds. Except this is this is a similar one to that, except it's rolling on Goodyear rubber. It's a car. But it's that same sort of thing, a demon that's trying to prevent people from doing the things that it doesn't want them to do. Yeah. Very unclear to, to Dennis, but all he knows is that he's got to get rid of it. Yeah. I like this as a thinny. And I also like it as sort of a hanging a lantern on the fact that even Dennis doesn't know what the heck is going on with uh, Christine. Is it a possessed car? Is it a ghost that is driving the car? Can you separate the two and it goes back to being a regular car? It, does the car just hold on to the ghost? We still don't know. No. And I'm still scratching my head about why I don't know yet. Yeah. Is destroying the car going to really help things or is he going to... Because LeBay has manifested outside of the car. Mm -hmm. So is 
destroying the car gonna it's like a horcrux or something who knows i I, none of us know (laughs) sean you've talked about some thinnies how about yucking it ups well i'll just continue with the LeBay stuff jay and that is during the ride that you mentioned earlier with dennis and christine on new year's day Dennis sees it was LeBay rotting and stinking of the grave, half skeleton and half rotting, spongy flesh, greenly corroded buttons. Maggots squirmed their sluggish way up from his collar. I could hear a low buzzing sound and thought at first it was a short circuit in one of the dashboard lights. It was only later that I began to think it might have been the sound of flies hatching in his flesh. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not good with any of that stuff. Maggots, flies hatching. I don't know if I've actually heard flies hatching out of maggot from maggots, but but the maggot thing definitely like you hear that. Bleh, not good. Mm-hmm. How about you? The one I wanted to call out was when Dennis was speaking with McCandless and learning a little bit more about LeBay's past. McCandless tells a story about the scars on his hands and then says, "Well, I actually got off lucky." And they played a prank. And when they picked up Christine's rear bumper, Christine drove off. And when that happened, she took off most of Sonny Bellerman's third finger. His wedding ring got caught under the bumper, and that finger popped off like a cork. And it's not that yucky in its detail here, but I always get the uh, the gross out feelings whenever I hear about dismemberment. Yep. I really, really, to this day, I get upset about Roland losing his fingers to the lobstrosities. So I don't know who the Sonny Bellerman guy is, but I know he's down one finger because of Christine. <laughs> yes. And I don't like it. Now I'm picturing Christine as just a giant lobstrosity, like not really red, but just sort of that lobster red color. Uh-huh. Boiled lobster red. Just clawing off people's fingers whenever she's got a chance, <laughs> like a giant lobstrosity. Nice. All right. Well, we want to take a moment to once again, thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. I want to particularly call out our most recent bonus podcast, Jay, which was an episode of the Green Mile. So to our listener, AMW1204, who left a review on the podcast, that was basically calling me out. Uh, for not ever seeing the Green Mile. I watched it and we did a bonus episode about it. So if you want to hear my thoughts, AMW1204, on what I thought of the Green Mile, you're going to have to become a patron to hear that. Right. And if you do become a patron, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower, you too can hear those bonus episodes. And our newest patron, Elizabeth P., who joined at the apprentice level, we wanted to... uh, call you out and say thank you in particular. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. We appreciate the support. Jay, we've been a little giddy all night. Indeed. I, I hope uh, I hope it, it doesn't go too crazy and fun stuff here. Well, we got a good long list. It's time for some fun stuff. I'll kick us off. All of this WDIL music, such as Bobby Rydell's Swing in School, makes me want to call out Sia's Cheap Thrills featuring Sean Paul. And the video of the song, not the song itself, the music is definitely not uh, very much like this WDIL style of music, but the video is a direct homage to Dick Clark and American Bandstand. It's even in, in black and white. 
they do some audio effects for the when people talk in the beginning of it to make it sound like they're in a they're using 50s technology to record mm. their voices with 50s like old microphones and stuff it's really cool it's a song i really like so it definitely stands up anyway if you haven't seen sia's cheap thrills video i will put a link to it in the show notes and you can check it out on youtube it's a lot of fun cool i wanted to call out how fantastic dennis's parents are so we get a sense that both of his parents are pretty good people and they're very supportive of their kids and and dennis in particular and dennis is talking about how polite his mother is and says if my mom was being led to the electric chair and bumped into the chaplain she would excuse herself of course his mom is so nice that i can't imagine a a time when she would go to the electric chair but would she do that (laughs) she would apologize for bumping into the priest my mom once told me that during i don't know middle school or something like that i was sleeping and she heard me burp from the other room (laughs) and i said excuse me in my sleep nice (laughs) i don't think i'm i am that nice anymore but at that point in my life i guess i was a very well well trained and well mannered young man. There you go. I wanted to call out McCandless and the name. Um, as I often do, I, I like thinking about the names that King gives his characters. And McCandless is a lot like Candle. And this character sheds a lot of new light on the story. Ah, interesting. Very nice. I'll also say that my wife, who grew up in western Pennsylvania, so near where Christine is set, knew a number of McCandlesses. It's not a name that I have ever encountered in real life, but my wife has. And so to see it also in this Western PA book one makes me wonder if that's a name that King ran into while he was in that area of the country. Could be. Maybe that's why he chose that name. I don't know. Candle stuff's good. What else you have? I like this line and it goes a lot to explaining what potentially could be happening in this book. The line is time passes. The mind rebuilds its defenses. And Dennis goes on and says, I think one of the reasons there is so little convincing evidence of psychic phenomenon is that the mind goes to work and restructures the evidence. A little stacking is better than a lot of insanity. So it, it'd be very easy to say, oh, Christine's driving itself. And then, you know, you wait a few days and you're, you could explain it away in some other way. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's probably how the mind works. The further you get away from an event the more you can try to justify it or come up with other things in your head to make it fit with your worldview and prevent yourself from going insane. Yeah. Yeah, I like that line a lot too. Going back to McCandless for another fun stuff item. As Dennis was getting to know McCandless, he was starting to kind of warm up to him because he was so personable and he kept going on and on on tangents and things like that. But he also had a certain style about him. He, He cursed a lot. But this like ran very much against what McCandless did for a living because he worked at a high-end exclusive furniture store. Mm. Dennis gave himself a, a little chuckle picturing McCandless selling this furniture to the type of clientele who would shop there. And he made up a, a, a moment in his mind where I had a moment to wonder just what it was McCandless did at David Emerson's. This is the furniture store which really was where Libertyville's elite bought. Was he a salesman? I could see him showing some smart young lady around saying, here's one fuck of a nice couch, ma'am. 
and look at this goddamn settee. <laughs> and I'm just like, yep, that sounds about right. I can just imagine that some that same young smart lady, like just sitting down and being aghast and walking out of the, the store. Yeah, once again, King shines at taking minor minor characters who are only with us for a few pages and giving them some characteristic that really makes them stand out. We, mm-hmm. call, we call this out a bunch in the stand, right? When he'd spend yeah. all these times giving these people characteristics and then, oh, they died from the flu two pages later. Because <laughs> I don't think the Candlest is going to show up again. It's not like he's going to be like, hey, Dennis, let me help you uh, get rid of that fucking car. Yeah. Yeah, he's not going to swoop in in the last moment and like save the day. He's just going to keep selling Libertyville furniture to uh, the smart young ladies in town. <laughs> I had one other one. When Dennis is driving around and he has his kind of time shift moment, he sees a sign for Mapleway Estates, Libertyville Realtors, sole selling agents, a good place to raise your family. Think about it. And basically, this is one of the things that's a a sure sign that he is looking at Libertyville of the past, Mm. because this was a sign for realtors selling property that he didn't that didn't exist yet, and that was in fact the house where he currently lived. Right. So it was this this moment of past and present overlaying, and in fact that was the old name of that part of town and that and those and all the houses that were part of that development but that made me think of the twin pines mall and back to the future because it's almost the exact same thing right and of course when marty goes back in time and he knocks one of the pines over it becomes the one pine mall or something like that right and he has a similar thing where he doesn't he park the delorean behind a billboard that is advertising a new Mm mm-hmm Homes thing, yeah, like it's very much in tune with that. Yeah, so I, I like that Dennis went back to the future and saw the Mapleway <laughs> Estate sign, and Marty McFly went back to the future and saw the Twin Pines Twin Pines Mall sign, the Single Pine Mall. Yeah, mm-hmm. the only thing weirder than Dennis's ride in Christine is uh, like the Willy Wonka boat ride. Mm. This like weirdly creepy, like, hey, I think this is going to be normal, and it turns out to be much freakier than you could ever imagine. That was the vibe I got from it. Uh Uh-huh. So what else is going on outside of uh, the Stephen King world, Jay? Do you mean in the other worlds than these? Uh, For me, I have been watching Euphoria season two on HBO Max, and it is an amazing show. I highly recommend it. And... I'll just keep it simple and just say that it is gloriously filmed, it is wonderfully acted, and it is disturbingly intoxicating. Sounds like you want to get blurbed. Yes. It is on my list to watch, but I have not watched it yet, but uh, I am looking forward to it. I'm trying to convince the wife to watch it, but I don't think she's going to get there with me, so I might have to watch it on my own. Yeah. There are some, like, I should probably add some trigger warnings for this. There's a lot of teen drug use, teen sex, and and violence. Mm. So, I, But I think that's part of what makes the show so fascinating. It doesn't shy away from some really messed up plot lines and stories. Uh, but while it's telling these extraordinarily disturbing things, the, these, these extraordinarily disturbing stories, 
it's doing so with uh, an, an artistic flair that you just can't ignore. Mm. And it, it, it draws you in and it keeps you there. While all sorts of mayhem may be happening in the story, you're just also like, this is beautiful. This is like the music, the, the visuals, the, everything is just incredible in this show. Excellent. How about you? All right. I had a free evening earlier in the week that I just wanted to sort of be happy. Why would you want to do that? Duh. There's a bunch of shows that I, I, I watch and most of the time they can be a little bit bleak. And so I was like, I'm going to put something fun on it. And I heard about this documentary called Summer of Soul, directed by Questlove. And it was about the Harlem Cultural Festival that took place in 1969. And this was a series of concerts that happened over uh, a number of weekends in this very hot summer in New York City. And they were all filmed and the film was lost. Like, the guy who filmed it thought that they would be able to sell it, and they started marketing it as the Black Woodstock because Woodstock took place that same year, and they were like, oh, we'll mm -hmm. market it this way, and we'll get people to watch it, and nobody bought it. And I think basically the film just sat in somebody's basement for like 50 years, and somehow it was recovered, and Questlove got a hold of it and made a documentary about it where he took all these great concert footage of Sly and the Family Stone and Stevie Wonder and Mavis Staples and Matilda Jackson and all these folks who've just had these great, great concerts in front of this sea of people in a park in Harlem. And it is just great because you see all these people in like 1969 clothing and it's mm -hmm. very bright and over the top, uh, Gladys Knight in the Pips and um, the fifth dimensions there, and they've got these weird orange and yellow costumes. Like it's all the '60s, like fashion, um, and it's all African American people, right? Like, and that's a big part of it. And so, not only do they had this footage from the nineteen from nineteen sixty nine, but then Questlove also interviewed some of the performers that were there. Um, Jesse Jackson spoke at it. They talked to him, and they talked about some of the people who just were attendees there. So, there's a kid who went there who, when he was six, and he said he sort of thought he imagined it because he was there so young. So he didn't remember, you know, he remembered certain yeah. things and he, he, I think he was the guy who said like, my life before then was black and white. And then after that it was color. And he oh. sort of thought he was crazy because he had never like, there's not, there wasn't film of it. Right. And mm -hmm. he remembered his parents taking him, and people were there, but like, was it real? What did I see? Did, 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 there's no record of it. And then to have somebody create this documentary he was just like astounded and Questlove put it together and just great music. And, you know, obviously there's a little bit of sadness to it. Jesse Jackson talks about when Martin Luther King was killed and how this was coming out of that as well. So, but I watched the whole thing. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to talk about this because this is such a good movie. And it, I think it's something that people should, should take a look at. And then towards the end, they were talking. And one of the people who I think was a performer said that concert was like a rose coming through cement. And then I was like, holy shit, that's a thinny too, isn't it? Nice. That's just like the Dark Tower, Rose coming through cement. And I could just sort of like, wow, that's great. But anyhow, if you want to see some great performances and a really well done documentary about an event that I had no idea of, I've obviously heard of Woodstock, but I, I had not heard of the, the Harlem Cultural Festival. And so that's called Summer of Soul. It's free on Hulu. If you have Hulu, go and check it out. And I think it just got an Academy Award nomination Oh wow! for best documentary. So 
how much music do they actually include in it? Is it like, do you see full performances, full songs? You do see some full songs, yes. Okay. So it, it, it's not like Woodstock where it's concert footage, where it's just all concert stuff, but you do mm-hmm. get full songs from a lot of people. You don't get multiple songs. Like you get, well, that's not true. Sly and the Family Stone, you might get two songs from, but like you get one Stevie Wonder song, a couple Fifth Dimension songs, and, and sometimes they talk over it, but most of the time it's like actual f- footage. So. Oh, that sounds great. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. So, all right. Well, that is going to be the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we conclude Christine, covering chapters 48 through 51 and the epilogue. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. You ever find yourself having a random conversation and you realize, my voice sounds really good right now. I wish I were recording a podcast instead of having this other conversation. Uh, No. I I do that. I don't. When you say triangle, are you, do you have like a weird accent that I'm not picking up on? Are you triangle? Yeah. You said, I heard you say tringle. Tringle? Two times. I wonder if uh, it's my cough drop. <laughs> tringle. I don't know. Maybe it's like the An Ohio you way. Know, Northern Ohio accent. For some reason you say tringle? Triangle with triangle. Without the A. Triangle. Maybe. Maybe I am saying triangle. Now, now it sounds like triangle. Maybe I'm overconscious about it. It's like when I was a kid, I used to say uh, milk, more like M-E-L-K, milk. Mm. That was just sort of a Northern Ohio accent. And I got super paranoid about it because I'd say pillow too. You put your head on a pillow. And now I'm like overly conscious about it because so many people made fun of my accent. So I say pillow, 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 and milk, milk, milk. So I don't do that. As you cry into your milk and cry into your pillow. Into my pillow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I completely derailed your That's okay because my pillows are shaped like triangles. <laughs>